when you listen to an Indigenous youth, they feel empowerment. When that happened to me, it gave me a big, big, big boost in my confidence. It's, it's kind of cheesy, but I feel like I mattered. <laughs> like they made, me, they made me feel so important. Welcome to the Xeno Learn podcast, where we ask the question, if you could teach the next generation one thing, what would it be? I'm your host, Claire, and I am so excited for you to join us today. A trigger warning at the beginning of this episode. This conversation includes discussions about and or references to mental health, Indigenous history, colonization, residential schools, suicide, and suicide prevention. We do our best to treat these serious topics with the utmost care, respect, and sensitivity. But if these themes are triggering for you, we encourage you to take care while listening or skip this episode entirely. Thank you. And welcome back, Xeno Learners, to another episode of the Xeno Learn podcast. Today, I'm joined by Modest of We Matter. Modest, hi, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm very good today. I am looking forward to this conversation. So, Modest, would you please introduce yourself to our Xeno Learners? Sure. My name is Modest McKenzie, and I'm a 26-year-old Dene man. I live in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, which is right on the edge of the boreal forest, sort of on the northern prairie in our prairie provinces here in Saskatchewan. I have a big passion for culture, current events, history, politics, and Métis jigging. I'm also a father to a four-year-old girl. Yeah. As always, I'm recording from Europe today in the Netherlands. Modest, where are you recording from? I am recording in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. It's nestled right by the North Saskatchewan River in Treaty 6 territory, also in the homeland of the Métis. So how did you come to learn about We Matter? How did your life intersect with this amazing organization? For me, it started about four years ago when I was working as a youth support worker in a community called Larange. And at that time, Larange was going through a really nasty cluster of youth suicide. We lost about six girls between the ages of 10 to 14 in a period of about three weeks. And I think within that same month, there was about 70 plus documented suicide attempts. And this wasn't just happening in LaRange, it was happening in various other communities across the country. This was right around when We Matter was established, and its two founders were invited to come to LaRange, founders Hunchai Redvers and Calvin Redvers, and they were in LaRange delivering these presentations and me being a youth worker. I've been hearing about this, I just wanted to bring some of my youth that I worked with to that event. Yeah, then that's how I was first introduced to We Matter. So it seems that you were in a moment where the message itself of We Matter was so important to share to the community that Indigenous youth belong and that they matter. 
and that they deserve to be celebrated in their communities and in the greater Canadian community at large. Absolutely. And I think another thing that they brought to the youth was, you know, sometimes when you look in the media, at the news, you don't see a lot of positive headlines about Indigenous peoples. And they were trying to change that story as well, that there are good positive things out there, that (laughs) that there's more than just tragedy and crisis in Indigenous communities. And it's important that you see that. So let's talk about the story of We Matter a little bit more. What is We Matter? We Matter is this Indigenous youth-led organization, and it started off with a video campaign. The founders, Tunchai and Kelvin, were looking around in the media landscape. They were looking across the country, and they weren't seeing this positivity, and, and they weren't seeing these good messages that Indigenous youth could absorb. So they approached a few prominent individuals within the Indigenous community across the country and asked them to make a one or two minute video of of their message, their positive message to Indigenous youth directly. And then it sort of snowballed from there. Individuals and folks started submitting written works and artistic messages. And then it kept snowballing and snowballing. And then they started holding gatherings and forums in Ottawa. And then it kept snowballing and snowballing. And now it's this organization that has toolkits for youth support workers, teachers, for parents, for youth themselves. We have a national grant program where we can deliver dollars directly to Indigenous youth for suicide prevention or life promotion. We have a program called Ambassadors of Hope that have Indigenous youth across the country and we fly them to this one location for about a week and give them training on creating presentations, delivering speeches. And then they go out into their communities and their surrounding communities and they deliver those messages of hope with support from We Matter. So if I may, let's take a step back because not all of our listeners are from Canada and not all of them may be familiar with the context of Indigenous communities in Canada. Is there anything that our listeners should know before we dive into these subjects more deeply? Absolutely. Um, I believe it's important for the listeners to have an idea about colonization and the history of colonization that occurred in Canada. For instance, one of the most impactful and negatively impactful colonization policies in Canada were residential schools. And this impacted generations and generations of Indigenous peoples, and it still has an impact on today's generation. And what happened there was Indigenous youth children were taken from their parents and they were forced into these schools that were often taught by members of the church, many different churches, Catholic, Anglican. And what these schools were designed to do was to basically kill the Indian and the child. It was designed to take away their language, their culture. They were forced to cut their hair. And it was it was more than just one generation that this happened to. And that's a huge component right there. Also, for a broader context, the term indigenous, that's sort of broad and it encompasses three different groups of indigenous people, the Métis people, First Nations people, and Inuit people, all three of which are distinct. They have their own languages. They have their own cultures. They're very, very distinct. And what does Métis mean? Um, well, Métis, Métis people, like myself, we're, we're half-breeds. So we have European ancestors that came over during the fur trade. 
And then they found First Nation wives and they mixed and eventually became a distinct peoples that were born right here in North America. Browsing through the website, there's a lot of history and information to learn about Indigenous youth and the situation right now. We noticed that on the website it says suicide rates for Indigenous youths are several times higher than that of other Canadians, as well as rates for challenges like addiction, abuse, and school dropouts. Can you paint a picture and explain the story behind these statistics? Why are the rates of suicide, addiction, and abuse so much higher in Indigenous communities? Definitely. That's a very important question. To kind of just like a general answer is, I would say, a lack of hope. That is huge. And that's something that impacts a lot of Indigenous youth. As for why there are those challenges, for one, definitely residential schools, generations and generations of Indigenous youth being taken away from their parents, losing their culture, losing their language. Also, with residential schools, I think that impacted the parents as well, because how the heck do you parent or how do you like, you know, raise your children in a healthy way if you haven't been raised in a healthy way? That's a really tough cycle to break. And that didn't happen for one generation or, or two. It happened three or four, five or six generations sometimes as well. And then you also have events like the 60s scoop where Indigenous youth were taken away from their parents and raised with settler parents. That's actually what happened to my father. And there are other issues like chronic underfunding on reserve. Indigenous youth who go to school on reserve get much, much, much less per student. For a while, I know for every dollar off reserve, Indigenous youth would only get 60 cents. There's also chronic underfunding with on reserve health. You know, there's <laughs> there's so much. And I would argue that Systemic racism plays a big part in that. And that's a contributing factor as well. You know, colonization was a nasty, nasty thing. And colonization is still happening. And the colonial policies of the past are still around and their impact is still around. So I think that will indeed help us understand these issues a little bit more. Now let's talk about what We Matter's mission is. And a little bit more concretely, what it does, you've said that it has an ambassador program, that it has a video campaign toolkit. What are some ways that people can benefit from the services of We Matter? I guess I'll sort of start off with our mission. We're trying to communicate to Indigenous youth that they matter. We're trying to create spaces of support while fostering unity and resiliency we also want to be a platform to amplify Indigenous youth voices. A big part of this is also delivering messages of hope. We want to make our community stronger and just empower the youth. So check out WeMatterCampaign.org to access our toolkits. We have all of them on our website. They're free to download, or you can just email us or send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and someone will see that and we can mail these toolkits to you as well. All of our videos are up on our website. They're on YouTube and sometimes internet access can be a bit of an issue as well. So if you can provide us with a mailing address, we can mail these USB sticks that have a ton of videos already uploaded on them and we'll send you our material for free. 
as well with the COVID-19 support fund that we have. We're going to be opening up another round in March of 2021. So if you want some money to, <laughs> to do something cool for the youth in your community, to do something empowering that's done virtually, uh, take a look at our website around March. Okay. We'll include all of the links in the description of the podcast below. So I think that right now there's been a movement of communities and ethnic groups declaring, rightfully so, that their lives matter. And mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, how does it feel when an Indigenous youth is told that they matter? When I tell an Indigenous youth that they matter, and when I see some co-workers or these ambassadors of hope deliver these messages and, and tell Indigenous youth that they matter, I see empowerment. I think the stories of youth suicide clusters and high rates of suicide in general can make communities and Indigenous youth feel deflated and like they don't matter. When you see a story like that once or twice in national headlines every year, you definitely start to feel deflated. And I think Indigenous youth at times feel like people or society just doesn't care about them. And that's, I don't think that's right. I think Indigenous youth are the future and, and we need to nourish them and give them lots of attention and care. And I see confidence going up in Indigenous youth when we tell them that they matter and when we bring these messages of hope to them. It's so encouraging to hear that you're seeing an increase in confidence and growth. And I wonder if there's also an increase in celebration of pride of one's identity. Is this something you're also observing? Definitely. You know, I have a little story about one of our hope forms, and it was the most recent one in 2019. On the first day, day one of day five, when all the youth flying from across the country were all so excited to be in this hotel and meet new people. And as soon as we sit down, we usually have like a sharing circle where we all introduce ourselves and we pass a microphone around. On that first day, a good chunk of our, our ambassadors of hope were really shy. And they were immediately like, just get this mic away from me. But on day five, sometimes you just couldn't get a microphone away from someone, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's so fantastic to see just folks coming out of their shells. And not only that, I think lots of sharing is going on. It's a really comforting and supportive environment. You know, you have First Nation, you have Métis and you have Inuit people there. Then the sharing and the exchange of ideas really begins to flow because you all have these mutual interests in your own culture and you love learning about all these other cultures and languages and you can really see the pride there. That's such a nice story. That put a smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so warming to see. So Modest, why is it important to create these spaces that honor and celebrate Indigenous identity and how can we do it? It's important to create these spaces for Indigenous youth because Indigenous youth are learning and they're growing. And a lot of Indigenous youth are figuring out who they are. They're still learning about their culture. And as to how those spaces are created, there definitely has to be a supportive environment. Definitely. When you sit down with a group of Indigenous youth from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, you have to definitely lay down some rules and 
no tolerating intolerance, I guess, as well. It's very important to be just accepting and to listen. When I had a couple of youth, when I was working in LaRange who were contemplating suicide, they had a plan, they were going to do it. And you know, I found out at the last moment because they reached out to me, all I could really do in that exact moment was listen and just be supportive and keep that conversation going. And that's, that's huge. Like you said earlier, listening sounds so simple, but the effect of being heard and being listened to is enormous. So can we talk about the role of listening to Indigenous youth and listening to people who are contemplating suicide? For sure. When you listen to an Indigenous youth, when you let their ideas and their vision in your mind, and not only that, you try and help that vision come to fruition, they feel, and, and I've been fortunate enough to have some great mentors who have listened to me, and they help me shape these ideas and create programs. I just, when that happened to me, I felt so powerful. It gave me a big, big, big boost in my confidence. I felt supported and, and um, it's, it's kind of cheesy, but I feel like I mattered. <laughs> like they made, me, they made me feel so important. Um, and as for talking with someone and having a conversation with someone that's contemplating suicide, it's essential to listen. Yeah, first of all, you have to make sure, though, that they're not in any danger, in immediate danger, or like if they have a gun or something like that, it might be good to take that into consideration. And also that you're not in any immediate danger. And then from there, you have to listen for these hints, right? These hints like, oh, I haven't been feeling so good about myself lately. I've just kind of been thinking about ending ending it all. That's a big red flag right there. You, you'll want to dive into that. You'll want to ask them. Are you thinking about suicide? And if they answer yes, then once you get them talking, you just have to keep on listening and keep on listening and keep on listening and keep that conversation going until there's like a turning point, until you can get them speaking a little bit more positively. And then from there, you'll want to like definitely de-escalate the situation by taking that person's means away and also creating a plan and making sure that that person will be okay. There's no way if an indigenous youth said to me, I'm thinking of taking my own life and, you know, I got these pills at home. There's no way I would be like, well, now that we've talked for an hour and you feel better, I'm just going to send you home with those pills and no one home to like to supervise you or to watch you or to be with, to be with you. So creating that plan afterwards is incredibly important. Contacting parents, cookums, aunties, uncles, just making sure that they're okay and can be watched a bit after. Or sometimes you have to take youth to emergencies or, you know, get them in touch with a mental health therapist. Yeah. And of course, there are more tips and advice in the toolkits on your website. I was browsing through those today. And I think that some of them are also very informative and educational for all youth. I was looking at the difference between self-care and coping, which I think is often used interchangeably but there's a big difference between self-care and coping. So what is self-care sure. and what is coping? Self-care is something I am just learning. <laughs> I work and I have so much going on in my life that, oh boy, sometimes I just, I don't take care of myself, you know? I let my batteries drain. And it's super, super important to not let that happen. You don't want to let yourself burn out. And for self-care, that can be anything really 
for me, I like to get some fresh air. When there was no pandemic, I'd go hang out with my friends and my square dance team, and we'd all jig for a while or something like that. Or one of my favorite self-care things to do is to just move my bed into the living room, like right in front of the TV for a few hours. And I watch Netflix and just relax. That is one of my favorite things to do. And coping, sometimes I get anxiety. Maybe I'll have too much coffee and then I'll have a bunch of deadlines. And then that anxiety starts to bubble and I can feel it in my chest. Then once I get that anxiety, then I'll start to have trouble breathing or I feel like I'm having trouble breathing. And then I'll do something that's like a box breathing technique where I'll inhale for four seconds hold it for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, and then just hold it for another four seconds. So that's one of my coping mechanisms and something that I use to deal with anxiety. So one, I guess, is more acute. The other is making sure that your batteries don't get drained and that you just keep yourself in a good headspace. So there are lots and lots of resources at We Matter. And of course, we have to recognize that we are currently in a pandemic. So given the current situation as well, what are the mental and physical effects of COVID-19 on Indigenous youth and Indigenous communities today? That is a good question. Um, definitely one major, major impact on mental health is caused from isolation. That is huge. You know, you can't, you can't go out and visit your friends. Personally, <laughs> I've been struggling with that too. I haven't met up with my jigging and square dancing friends in months and we haven't had a performance scheduled in months. Um, that, that's had a negative impact on me. That's had a negative impact on my friends. And that isolation is, is really tough. Another thing as well is that you're at home a lot. It's sort of like a double-edged sword. You're isolated, but you're not. You know, you're at home with your family all the time. And I love my family, but boy, they drive me bonkers sometimes. And sometimes you need to get away. You can go for a walk, but it's sort of tough when you can't go see your friends because their family is in, is in isolation because they were exposed to COVID-19. There's also been, you know, like a lack of community gatherings and cultural camps and stuff like that. And that's hard too. It's really nice getting on the land with elders and other youth. That's unfortunately just not happening as much because of COVID-19. Some of the more physical side of things, there's a lot of housing issues with Indigenous peoples, a lot of overcrowded housing, both on reserve and off reserve. Something also physical that increases the feeling of isolation is some communities, for good reason, will restrict movement in and out of their communities. And sort of feeling stuck in your community is a big challenge. Um, I myself, this past spring, was living in northern Saskatchewan, and there was a massive, massive outbreak in the north, and the whole north was essentially cut off from the south. I couldn't go to Prince Albert to go buy groceries. My daughter couldn't see her grandmother. You know, even though you're in this massive like, geographic area, it still kind of feel like boxed in a little bit, and that's something that's never happened to me before. It's scary. Yeah. Modest. We've dealt with some fairly heavy topics this episode, and I would like to end on a lighter note, if possible. You mentioned that you like to do jigging. Can you tell us what jig dancing is 
And why is it important for jig dancing to be passed on to the next generation? I can definitely tell you what that is. This is one of my biggest passions in life. So we call it jigging or square dancing or step dancing. If you're from Northern Ontario, that has a very specific meaning there. You know, I'm not really sure where it came from. The main narrative out there is that it's this Métis dance. And when Europeans came over and mixed with First Nation people, um, their dances sort of fused together. And it's like a mix of like powwow dancing and like Scottish jigging. And that's what I believed for years until I got a little bit better at jigging. And then I went to like Manitoba. And then there's an Ojibwe elder there who said, you know what? Those darn Métis, they get all the credit for coming up with jigging, but it was the Ojibwe. And I was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I was like, no way. But who was I to tell this veteran and elder that, no, you're wrong. And then I was in Alberta with this Cree elder. And the Cree elder said the same thing. They said, ah, those darn Métis, they get all the credit for jigging. But it's a Cree thing. And again, who am I to question this elder? And then I was in northern Saskatchewan, where the Dene people live. And this Dene elder said the same thing. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know? I honestly, I don't know where it came from, but I know that it's everyone's dance. And essentially, it's sort of like, maybe your American listeners will know, sort of like a mix of clogging and like tap. And there's also some of the modern stuff will have crip walking and like shuffling the really modern moves. It's definitely, it's a combination of a whole bunch of dances. What draws you to jig dancing? Oh, geez. Um... I have a very competitive nature. It's sort of an artistic expression as well. But, you know, I love competitions. I love the challenge of learning new moves. I love how it how it challenges my body because it's a very high intensity, high energy dance and you need excellent cardio and a good set of lungs, excellent coordination. But one thing that jigging has given me is great friends and an amazing supportive group. That is why I love jigging. And I feel connected to my culture and to my ancestors because this dance has been around a couple hundred years, 150 years, you know, nobody's exactly sure, but it's been around. And I know my ancestors would jig. I've heard stories of like my great, great grandpa jigging. And I feel that sense of connection to them but also when you're performing at a cultural event, at a Métis event or First Nations event, you feel a sense of pride as well. Wow. I've seen some of you jigging online and I have to say I've been very impressed. <laughs> and I like the music too. It also reminds me of French Canadian music with the tuk, 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 the sound of the horse trotting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually one of the defining characteristics of traditional jigging, every single special move or fancy step that you change into has to sound like a horse kind of trotting or running along that. Amazing. We've been chatting for almost an hour. I've gotten so caught up in your stories and learning about We Matter. And the end of every episode, we always ask the same question. So if you could teach the next generation one thing about human differences, diversity or inclusion, what would it be? I would definitely highlight the importance of listening. That's it. You know, I don't think 
people do it enough. I certainly don't do it enough. I need to do it more. I, I acknowledge that. But, you know, listening, you can empower someone, you can support someone, you learn about them, and listening can teach you so much. We have two ears and one mouth. You know, I remember my mother, when I was young, when we would go to an elder's home, she would always look at me and she'd be like, you make sure you listen to this elder and you listen to their stories because it is incredibly, incredibly important that you remember what they say and remember their stories because eventually you're going to have to pass those stories down with us. Yeah, so definitely listening. I ask this question a lot and I've never heard that answer before. So I really appreciate your time and your stories, Modest, and I have been practicing that listening today here too and I hope that many more people will listen so thank you Modest and thank you to the We Matter organization for agreeing to be such wonderful guests on the Xeno Learn podcast thank you so much and of course thank you to all of your listeners out there really appreciate it Thank you so much to Modest McKenzie and We Matter. We Matter is doing amazing work and has lots of resources for Indigenous youth and communities on mental health and suicide prevention. All links, including We Matter's website and social media, will be in the description of this podcast. Okay, what are the takeaways from this conversation? Number one. Our first takeaway will be borrowed directly from We Matter's motto, I matter, you matter, we matter. Everyone deserves to feel that they matter and that they belong. Number two, it's important to understand the current struggles, challenges, and crises faced by Indigenous youth, notably in the context of We Matter and Canada, as the consequences of colonialism and assimilation. With that knowledge, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities can come together to help heal the effects of intergenerational trauma and restore the conviction in youth that they matter. But first, non-Indigenous communities should listen to the needs of Indigenous communities and offer support in the most appropriate ways possible. Number three, speaking of listening, like Modeste said, Active, engaged listening is so, so, so important. Not only when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention, but also when you want to show a person that they matter. It's a small action that means so much. And number four, take care of yourself and your body. Remember, self-care are the regular actions that you can take to refuel and recharge your batteries. Coping are the immediate strategies that you can use in stressful or anxiety-inducing situations. For more advice on self-care and coping, check out the We Matter links in the description below. If you liked this episode and learned a lot from our conversation, we ask Xeno learners to do one thing. Share. Help raise our guests' voices by sharing this podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We've also started a review shout-out on Instagram. Rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcast, and your review might be featured in next week's episode promo. The Xenolearn podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and many other platforms. 
You can find us at Xenolearn on all social media and www.xenolearn.com. Direction, hosting, and editing by Claire Lunison. Research and production assistance by Ashley Williams. Stay curious, embrace your differences, and remember, Xeno Learners, you belong. We'll be back next week with another great episode of the Xeno Learn podcast.